rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. Okay, so in a season that has given us some of the finest mythology work the series has done, in a series that has given us an off-brand origin story of the lone gunman where Scully doesn't appear at all and Mulder only appears very briefly, and in a season which gave us an episode like the postmodern Prometheus, they didn't do a very good job with Skazazany. Yeah, this was... It's the worst parts of Oubliette and the Giovanni Ribisi episode, and also I'd say a little bit about... the. Uh, yeah, it, this was... This was a dog, this one. This was not a good episode. I I kind I, of was exaggerating. I mean, I think it's, like, okay, well, but... I mean, every Monster of the Week episodes are only as good as their monster, and I will say it kept me guessing. Oh, I don't know what exactly this situation is, which is fine, but... I I I I mean I I I guess I'm going to end this train by saying so the lady was her father who died by the trees but he has tree powers and that's how he made her like it's one of those kind of endings with the monster where it just doesn't really make sense did we see enough cool it, shit in the rest of the episode to mitigate that I'm not quite sure You know it's interesting because well, A, I think that they it, – it's kind of a I'll, – I'll say it's a daring choice to try and make trees a threat huh. or to make trees feel scary. And uh, I guess they did what they could do with that concept, and I think they did an okay job, but they're trees. You know, they're just I not mean, scary. I mean, Evil Dead did a good job with it, but it was able to – add sexual violation to the mix and become really scary, which is something the X-Files could not do, so – Yes, it was still on network television in 1998, <laughs> I guess, at this point. But the other thing, too, is like, you know, I, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago about how the fifth season of The X-Files really took a long time to do a regular Monster of the mm-hmm. Week episode. And, you know, it's arguable whether or not Chinga is also one, but we will talk about Chinga because ah. there's a lot to talk about there. Well, I do have exactly one note for Schizo No, and I have like 20 pages for Chinga, so that will say something. Yeah, I think that will say something. Uh, but the other thing about Skisogyny is like, okay, so so they very much stayed away from Monster of the Week episodes in the fifth season. This is the first one that we've gotten, and this is the ninth episode of the season, or the tenth episode of the season, I forget which. And like... I think it's most, I mean, one of the things that I think you're going to see in the long, slow decline of the X-Files is that the Monster of the Week episodes are, surprise, surprise, only ever as good as their Monster of the Week. And this has a particularly weak enemy in this episode. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's not super threatening. And the more you think about it, the less sense it makes. And I can see like the bones of a good episode here. I can, I I like a lot of the Mulder and Scully interaction in this episode. For instance, I like, uh, I like actually like the performance of the actor who played the, the teen, um, quite a bit. I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here, but it all kind of just doesn't really go anywhere. And, I don't really understand 
why the therapist was doing any of this. I mean, you said like, yeah, she's inhabited by her dead father or something, but it's all very like nebulous and hard to explain and doesn't really add up to much. Yeah. See, without the trees, you could have, I think, an interesting episode about people who are abused by their parents and then they are able to tap into latent psychic powers to get revenge and you have this manipulative manip- and you have this manipulative therapist who is trying to bring this out i mean that would be fine once you add this tree crap in there it's it it feels like two again this is one of those where it feels like two episode scripts got shuffled together my mistake yeah, and and the show has done like non supernatural episodes before, right? I mean, they you know Donnie um, from uh, uh, was it Irresistible, I think, um, and a couple other ones were sort of like on the fence about sort of you know whether or not they were uh, a supernatural or or alien plots. The the show is able to do that sometimes, and maybe this would have been the chance to to do that because if you just boil this episode down to its barest essence of you know, here is a therapist who was dramatically injured psychologically and mentally by her abusive father who is doing the same thing to the children of this town. Uh, that's an interesting episode. I would like to watch that episode. Yeah. But the issue is like, they, I guess they were just like, well, it's an X-Files episode, so we have to come up with some sort of thing that is going to be the thing that makes people actually want to watch this episode. And... Like, it's so half-assed. I mean, there is the guy with the axe, who I don't ever think actually gets a name, who sort of the is Lorax. Like misdirected. The Lorax. There you go. Uh, it, it's misdirected, of course. Scully is threatened by him because he's a swarthy man holding an axe, I guess. Uh, I guess I'd be threatened, too. I don't know. Um, and then, of course, it turns out that he's the guy that solves the mystery and shows them what's going on and, you know, takes care of it and everything. Was he somebody's... Uh, and it's almost comical. Was he somebody's dad? Who was he? I have no <laughs> idea. Okay. Um, but it was like, it's almost comical how he just, like, hits her and then he's like, well, that's done. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, why didn't you do that, like, a, like an hour ago and we could have been saved this entire mess of an episode? Yeah. Uh, and there are some striking images in the episode. I mean, I think that, you know, him cutting into the hazelnut tree and having it bleed. Yeah. And, you know, that's very uh, evocative and, you know, there's symbolism there and everything. But for what? Well, we learn that sometimes people who say that they are being abused actually aren't being abused. So you should always take claims of abuse with a grain of salt. I don't think that's a great message. <laughs> well, I don't think it's a great episode. Like, that's not good. <laughs> that's actually a very dangerous like, thing to put out in the world. I, I don't know. It's just like, why? Why would you make this episode? I mean, yeah, no. it I'm, strikes me as, well, it strikes me as odd because I don't think that's quite the message of the episode, no, of course, because... The children involved never told anyone that they were being abused. It's just the therapist was trying to convince them that they were being abused. And then it comes out, of course, after they died, but they don't actually ever say it to anyone except after the death of their parent. And so it, it's just a little muddled, right? And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
again, it's I don't get what the lesson was here, but I also don't get what it doesn't have to have a lesson. Like Sanguinarium had no real lesson, but it was a hell of an episode because that episode was obviously a delivery system for these really gory uh, horror sequences. I don't necessarily while while what's his name getting swallowed up by the earth was cool enough to see. I don't know if that was worth making an entire episode to do that effect. Again, I can get behind it. I can get behind an effects heavy episode, but the effects have to be cool. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really hold up to anything. I mean, I think the the comparison to Sanguinarium is actually very interesting because Sanguinarium like had no point, didn't really go anywhere and but it was just really fun yeah. to watch. And that's okay. That's all you need sometimes. I, I I think that this episode was trying to elevate itself with, you know, some form of, of, of you know, critique or criticism or, or trying to say something, some kind of message. And it, it didn't need it. Like, I think it would have been enough to go, oh, people are being attacked by trees. All right, what's happening? And then have a bunch of striking imagery of people being attacked by trees in weird ways. Oh, like uh, the like blood. That was another episode where... It didn't really matter. It was just a couple of weird attacks and sequences, and there was some half-assed thing about, well, there it's an experiment, and but it was just a real, uh, it was just a fucked up episode where some fucked up stuff happened. I honestly don't remember what episode that is. Yeah, that uh, like the microwave says bye bye at the end. Remember that? Like there, there's. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> that one. Yep, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like there was some vague illusion to okay people are being controlled by the media or something but yeah it wasn't the point of the episode i mean this episode takes so much time up with like let's talk about the therapist and let's talk to the therapist and let's talk to the kids about how they were abused and uh, you know and it's just like why why this this is not what this episode is good at and this is not the point of this episode i mean like i guess it's the point of the episode because you're saying it's the point of the episode but you need to make a better episode then. You need to get this point out of there. Yeah, no, this wasn't one of the good ones. Well, I, I think we're almost actually ready to stop talking about this episode, and I kind of wish they had never made it, so maybe we're just kind of trying to escape further and further back into the past, and eventually it will never exist. But Because it's funny, like I thought it was fine while I was watching it, but then the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, yeah, this is actually a really terrible episode. I mean, for me, I thought it was going to add up to something, so at least I had that, but you've assumedly seen this before. I have, and maybe I just sort of like blocked it out. (laughs) Maybe my brain was protecting itself from this episode. I'm not sure. Because that's the thing, like it's well done. I mean, there's there's competency here. It's it's just, you know, it's well directed, it's well shot, it's well acted, just doesn't go anywhere doesn't add up to anything and then it sort of takes this hard left turn at the end of the episode and she's inhabited by the body of her dead abusive father or something and you're like what what just happened what did i just watch Uh, uh, i guess on that level the ending makes sense at least it's like what did i just watch (laughs) really that just happened am i am i like did, did someone slip something into my root beer like what's going on here i just think it's kind of funny because in other seasons we've said some stuff like Oh, well, they have to do 26 episodes, so they're not all going to be... Well, this was a shorter season. (laughs) Well, you know, this season has had some of the finest episodes of the show so far, so I guess they had to just make up for it with this one. And and Chinga as well, frankly, but we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I think the last thing I want to mention about Skizagazi is... uh, 
there's a scene very early on where Mulder says uh, dorkweed. <laughs> and the, I think this tells you like what I was actually interested in while watching this episode. And like it's the worst ADR I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. He's obviously saying dickweed. And uh, I don't know what that's about, but I just thought I'd mention it because I thought it okay. was real weird. Yeah, no, that that like, the audio seemed weird on that to me too. I was I wasn't sure if it was just like, me or not. You, you can you can you could say dickweed on television in 1998, couldn't you? I don't know if you could yet. Maybe they had. Like, I don't know. Like it seems like one of the things. Like remember how like they'd say asshole and they have to bleep out the whole part of it, like. Maybe if you said dickweed, they'd have to say dick beep. So, like, they had, they, they, they thought dorkweed, they didn't have to have that. Because you can say, like... Nobody ran that by, like, standards and practices before they actually shot the fucking episodes? <laughs> you act like care was... No, no. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I just want Walter to say dickweed some more. All right, well, let's move on to, to Chinga then. But before we do that, I, I do want to take an opportunity to remind all of you that this podcast is listener supported. If you would like to support our podcasting endeavors, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Check out our reward tiers. We have a few of them there. Uh, one you might be interested in is perhaps getting early access to each episode of this podcast one week before it's aired. And you can do that by giving us $4 a month or more. So once again, that is patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Well, I know Richard is chomping at the bit to talk about Chinga for, for many, many reasons. So let's waste no more let's time. Have and let's have fun. about Chinga. I want to play. <laughs> I want popcorn. This is... <laughs> This is objectively a terrible episode of the show. Oh, I know, uh, but I loved it. But it's just, there's something about it that just speaks to me. <laughs> this is one of the ones that I had seen when it aired, because at the time I was the world's biggest Stephen King fan, and obviously having King write- Wait, a- Stephen King wrote this episode? Yeah. Did you? Did you I, uh, I know. I it know. It was surprising. I know it's weird. It's set in Maine. But um, obviously that was a oh, yeah? obviously that was a gimmick, and the gimmick worked on me. Um, I f- oh yeah, <laughs> that one lady is. I'm just gonna keep saying that for the rest of the podcast. How do I put it this way? This episode feels like Stephen King wrote fanfic of his own work and X Files, and. <laughs> It's kind of glorious in that way because I I feel like Stephen and now again King wrote this I believe with Chris Carter um but that's well so <laughs> yeah what is the exact I let yeah let let's get into the backstory of this so 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 first of all I I, I do think that we need to uh, call out that the history of Stephen King. Uh, writing for film or television yeah. uh, is is not how we ha- how I should say uh, good. Um, I I I personally love Stephen King. I mean, Richard also loves Stephen King. Um, I got into Stephen King late, so I've read some Stephen King when I was a teenager, and I was kind of like, okay, whatever. Um, and then I started rereading Stephen King a few years ago, and I've read a lot of it now. I mean, I you know probably I don't know. 
15 or 20 novels and, you know, two or three short story collections, which I think is about 5% of his entire total. <laughs> but, you know, you've read the major I'm only works, one man yeah. and I'm only 37 years old. You've read the major works. You have a good idea of what Stephen King is. Yeah, exactly. I have a good I have a good understanding of 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 what he likes to write about, what his themes are, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but but like like I said before, he has uh, never really been someone who who has had much success uh, writing a film or television script. Uh, he just doesn't seem like the kind of skill set that he has, which you know is fine. Like the man is a fantastic. Uh, novel and short story writer I actually would argue maybe um, that his short stories are better than his novels, but and his novels are very good, so yeah. that's saying a lot. Uh, well, one of the things, and so when he like, go ahead. Well, one of the things that I love about Stephen King is his narrative voice. I, his narrative voice is brilliant. It's this very, I. It very much. He's very good at getting into the heads of his characters. He does have this cross between terrifying and down home folksy charm, and all of that. It's a very friendly and warm, and to me, a very welcoming voice. Oddly enough, given his subject matter, but again, because I have been reading him since since I was thirteen years old. Uh, but that is something which does not at all get translated to his screenplays, and it's so it it. it to me, his screenplays miss the best part of his writing. I can see a short story version of this story that is very good. I for the the yeah the, yeah the opening scene in the grocery, which is I would say probably the strongest scene in the in the episode. Again, I can see how he would write that scene, and it would work really well. He would do this just normal grocery store trip, and this woman with this, and suddenly everybody's clawing their eyes out, and it's horrifying. Yeah, yeah, that's actually really, really astute because I, I I do agree with you. Like, I think that one of the pleasures of reading Stephen King is 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 getting into his head, frankly, and and I think that he's a writer who um, is ne- you're he's never very far away from the page, right? Mm. I mean, he's he's always there, and and I'm not yeah. saying like he's writing this like in the first person or as Stephen King or anything like that, but he has he has a very particular point of view and and it is very consistent throughout i think most of his work which i think is one of the reasons why he's such a good writer frankly yeah it's it, it, it's a feeling of storytelling almost it's like he's reading this to you uh there is a very strong intimacy between the writer and reader in his novels oh yeah i mean and and it's something that hasn't flagged i mean i yeah. i recently read um, under the dome and I, I basically devoured it i read it yeah. in like five days and it's like 1100 pages long um and it is exactly that kind of novel but then you look back at something like uh, say it which is another one of his oh, famous yeah. like giant novels and it is a better novel than under the dome but uh i think under the dome is a little bit of a shaggy dog story frankly um but hey it's stephen king so what is what a what is what a shock <laughs> um but like because really the point of a Stephen King story is not the ending, it's the journey. Yeah. Uh, but he does, I mean, it's very consistent. I mean, it was writ- written, you know, 35 years ago, and it's still, he still got that voice that still still maintains itself. Um, but all that said, you, you don't really get any of that in Chinga. Yeah. And that's very difficult to, to pull off, of course, in a television episode. Um, one of the, I mean one of his quotes uh, he, he's talking about the difference between terror and horror and he says that terror is 
this feeling of sustained dread. Something horrifying is going to happen. It's going to be really bad. You don't know what it is, but this sense of apprehension and dread and horror is, you know, the monster jumps out at you. And he's he, he has this one quote that, you know, terror is the finest emotion. I will try to go for terror whenever I can. If I can't do terror, I'm going to do horror. And if horror isn't working out, I'm not proud. I'll go for the gross out. It seems like throughout a lot of this episode, King is trying to go for the gross out and have fun going for the gross out because why not? I'm writing a scary X-Files episode, but the makeup doesn't work. Like the eye clawing is nowhere near as awful as it would have been in in a short story. That needs to be an awful scene and surprising in a series which gave a sanguinarium, it doesn't quite go there. Yeah, I mean, because you—it's hard to say, right? I mean, I—I I, one of the things that I think is is difficult about about Chinga in general is that um, it was written by by Stephen King and Chris Carter, and you know, you can really see. I mean, this is really two separate episodes that was smushed together. You know, you 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 make that criticism of a lot of television, and yeah. it's really true in this in this you know <laughs> in this sense. Uh, the 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 sort of origin story for this episode is that um and this also i think shows the sort of power and reach of the x-files at its height because stephen king was a fan of the x-files he got a hold of chris carter or the producers or someone and said hey i like the x-files i would like to write an episode and they were like you're stephen king of course you can do that thank you very much let's 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 send us the script uh cuz how do you say no to that and but then, of course, like the script he sent in, like apparently the characterizations of Mulder and Scully were just like really off, and the Chris Carter kind of jumped in to sort of help out the script. And I think what essentially happened is that you get a very, uh, a very weird tonal mix between Stephen King's tension of of horror and Chris Carter making his own version of War of the Coprophages and neither of them really fit together very well. Yeah. I mean, the closest to that they come is the line at the end where Scully says, oh, I was on vacation. I had to get out of my head. And in a way, this is a vacation episode. We're going to do something that's tonally very weird for the X-Files. We're going to have Scully being the one who's jumping to to supernatural conclusions while Mulder's trying to come up with specific things like that this is a weird episode because it's vacation weird shit's gonna happen on vacation i don't know if that's enough of a justification but it kind of made sense to me i mean i think it i think it does i mean i i certainly don't think that um i don't know i don't have an i don't have a problem with the setup for this episode right like i think that in the same way that war of the coprophages was Mulder off doing something taking his little trip and then, you know, Scully was involved at home and he kept calling her and she was doing increasingly elaborate and weird things at home on a Saturday night, like washing her dog and stuff like that. Uh, it's the, it's it's just the reverse. I mean, it's kind of lazy in a sense, in a way. I mean, you could almost say, like, what is the point of this? Um, but I think there is a point to it because Chinga is a little... I think Chinga is a little underappreciated in X-Files criticism. Like it's certainly not like a good episode, no. but 
there is it is saying some interesting things about these two characters where Scully like almost immediately gets embroiled in this very strange mystery that's happening and while she doesn't really want to she just kind of like gets pushed along by circumstance and you know it's encapsulated by that wonderful visual joke of her wearing the uh, main t-shirt <laughs> like under under her normal blazer which is just fantastic like why would she even have packed that but whatever i love that um, the moment that she apparently she gets into maine she buys a main shirt and she changes into it though yeah that's what she does like <laughs> she she went on vacation like in a suit and then she changed out of her blouse into this t-shirt but kept the blazer on i mean it's just like such a perfect little <laughs> uh character note for her but and then of course like you know the difference between war of the coprophages and chinga is that you know scully was having like a standard normal saturday yeah. night uh, that we've all had you know she's watching tv she's washing her dogs you know whatever she's doing and and Mulder's like at work watching like porn he's go, or well, he's like throwing pen well it's a joke but you know yeah. throwing pencils at the ceiling i mean like he's not doing anything and it just really shows you to what degree like scully has sort of you know we've always talked about how uh scully has pretty much decided not to have like a personal life and how that's yeah. sort of shifting a little bit um you know her her abduction and her cancer diagnosis and now the the you know horribleness of finding out she had a daughter that just died and so she's kind of like going you know what i'm taking a weekend off and i'm going to maine and Mulder has never really been the type of person that i don't even think is even aware that people have personal lives and so when he doesn't have anything to do he's he's essentially like not doing anything he's standing in his apartment bouncing a basketball I mean, he's just like <laughs> the man doesn't know how to relax and it's just yeah. it's a fascinating i mean I, I i love that again in coprophages scully is perfectly happy having her just random all right i'm gonna do all the housework stuff that just needs to get done that i don't get during done during the week and i finally have a free night i mean that's what i do when i have a day off i finally clean you know i get my errands done and Mulder is going stir crazy without it like i i i I, he's he's desperate to hear from her anytime he keeps immediately like yeah oh i can help let's do this let's go i i'm gonna solve the mystery and i i I think it's adorable because the series has previously made Scully feel like she was the third wheel with the X-Files again in Never Again I'm Thinking Of or, uh, you know, where she's not fully invested in this. Mulder is – Mulder will always be fine without her. Mulder will always have his work, but – Again, I, I I like the little reversal here that Skelly is the one on the adventure and she's got this. She knows what she's doing. She's interested in this. Mulder's going to be probably a little annoying with this. And he's the one who can't can't make up anything to do. Right, right. I mean, like, there's plenty of stuff he could yeah. do. I mean, his fridge is entirely empty except for, like, a, an old sunny bottle of orange juice yeah like he could definitely go to the store and like buy food um but he doesn't want to do any of that right he just he he doesn't know what to do and so he's he's at loose ends um but then that's the chris carter part of the episode right like that's the part of the episode that chris carter like found his way into and then you have the stephen king part of the episode which i think part of the reason why chinga has such a um bad reputation 
is that, and I find it a fascinating episode. I mean, I, I don't think it, like I said, I don't think it's yeah. good, but but I find it interesting. And there are definitely parts to it that I'm, I'm intrigued by. Uh, part of the reason why the episode doesn't work is that um, I don't think that Chris Carter did as much of a job as he could have done in melding the tones of the episode. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm always on the fence. I mean, I'm always on the fence about whether or not they just didn't realize that this episode was very tonally off or that they were explicitly going for a very different tone and it just didn't work because I think it's very much encapsulated by the cold open of the episode, which is this horrible event where people are clawing their eyes out in a grocery store and the guy stabs himself in the head with a huge knife. The credits roll and then we come back and it's the like you know, the the happy, like, funny music that they use for comedy episodes and Scully's in a crazy, you know, main t-shirt and she's pumping her own gas. And you're like, what, what's happening right now? Am I having a stroke? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't get this. And it just keeps going like that where the scenes, the scenes in Maine that don't have Scully in them are played very seriously. And then Maine, then Scully comes into the show and or Mulder comes into the show through Scully's cell phone and suddenly you're off in like a Darren Morgan episode and it's just very, very odd. Yeah, I, I mean, you could see the advice of, well, you should vary tone and put some comedy scenes in a horror episode, which is writing advice that people give. But this is the poorly implemented version of that where it doesn't they aren't they don't gel together. And I mean, King himself in his writing puts a lot of weird comedic scenes or wry observations or things like that into it to vary his tone. But I wouldn't say that there's chapters that are, you know, it's not like chapter one is a hilarious joke chapter. And then chapter two is violence. And then chapter three is a joke chapter again. Yeah, no, I get you. I mean, I think that you can't really get away with that sort of thing in, in a television show or in a television episode as much because very, very wildly tones in, within episodes is very difficult to pull off. Um, But then, I mean, the Stephen King stuff in the episode, I mean, this is as like, it's okay. This is as central. This is, this is as central casting Stephen King story as you can get. It is. The tip, there is the old joke, oh, he just picks an object and it's haunted and that's a story. And, okay, we spun the wheel and it landed on Doll and, okay, we wrote the haunted Doll story. I mean, this is Stephen King writing a haunted Doll story. Yeah, exactly. And, like, it's, it's a fine haunted Doll story. I don't necessarily have any, like, objections to it. Um, but it's just not it's not very engaging. I I don't, I don't find it very interesting. Like I I fundamentally don't understand why her mother didn't just grab the doll and like throw it into the river. I, you know, I just, there's, there's things about it that I'm like, because by the time she realized it was too late, that doesn't make any sense. But by the time she realized it was too late, but that doesn't make any sense. You don't understand, Eric. She realized it, but by that time it was too, Oh, I get it. Okay. I mean, it's ironic. This is the same exact kind of uncomfortable plot that is in The Regulators, where we have another autistic child who is the focus of a demon. And while I can certainly see that maybe he is making some kind of ham fisted way around the point that parenting a special needs child has certain challenges. 
this is a weird theme. It's a super weird theme. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't, the thing is, like, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the episode tries to add some pathos or add some, you know, additional tragedy to this entire story by having, the, again, the very weird tonally off scene where they're talking about how they're, they're basically revealing that the deep, dark, you know, horrible origin story of her daughter, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, I mean, that's sad. And I, I feel for the daughter. I mean, she's, she's getting kind of a raw deal. And so is the mother. But at the end of the day, like, what are we supposed to take away from that? I, I don't like, is the doll latching onto the daughter because she's angry at the world? Like, I, I don't, I don't know. Like you could, you you can spin your wheels and come up with all kinds of weird theories or weird sort of metaphors that are embedded into this. But at the end of the day, uh, I don't really care what happens to these characters. And that also is something that Stephen King does sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly think that you see in a lot of his writing, sometimes the characters are there for him to play with and you are not supposed to care about them. And you you don't, you know? And well, then there are other novels or short stories he's written, which are very much the opposite. Yeah, and a lot of times he... Because I do... his his When he is at his best is when you are really feeling for even the villains. He is good at creating a sympathetic monster, um, which is another reason why it's kind of a shame, because The X-Files is a show about sympathetic monsters. And... This would be a perfect venue for him to take a villain and just get into his head. Like, again, thinking about it, the character of Henry Bowers, for example, a complete and utter monster. And he's, he he really does a lot to how does this person tick? What does he think? What is his life? This would be a perfect venue for that kind of story. Yeah, but I think that the the, the problem with Chinga is that the, there is no villain, right? Like, the, we're not supposed to think that the daughter is actually evil. And in fact, when she is outside of the doll's influence, she seems very reasonable and seems like a nice little girl. Um, the mother doesn't seem like a bad person. Uh, nobody in the town really seems like a bad person. Uh, it's just circumstance. It just feels like bad luck. You know, this is... This is the X-Files version of, oh, her daughter was hit by a bus and now she's a quadriplegic. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just, there, there's not there's nothing about it. There's no, there's no central villain that you can really wrap your teeth in and make them sympathetic. Because what are you supposed to feel sad for the doll? <laughs> yeah, and even, I wanted a stupid explanation for why the doll was there. You know, I wanted to hear that it was made from a tree that grew on a grave and the doll maker murdered somebody and used the blood to paint that. Like, I wanted that crap. And <laughs> they didn't even give that to me. Yeah, because it's like the ending of the episode is particularly weak, Even I think even for an X-Files episode where, you know, Scully throws the, the doll into the microwave and it catches on fire almost immediately, which I don't think would, ha- would not happen, but whatever. Uh, yeah, somehow. Um and then everything is fine, and the daughter is now fine again, and the doll can't control people and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then the doll, like, reappears, <laughs> and some someone else pulls it out of the ocean, and it's burned up, and you're like, yeah. okay. I mean, just as there— You got me, Steven. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do with this? Just as this episode is kind of 
reveling in the Stephen King cliches. That's an X-Files cliche it's reveling in, that, oh, the monster's not quite dead, really. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, like, I think this is a very interesting episode. <laughs> like, is it is it good? Mm, no, not really. But there's a lot here that is... You know, I find interesting failures fascinating. Yeah. And and I think I would qualify this as an interesting failure. Like, is it is it possible that Stephen King couldn't have, could have written like one of the best X-Files ever written? Sure. Uh did he do it? No. Um I mean, I'm not upset that this is the this is the most Stephen King writes an X-Files episode episode you can get, and I'm kind of glad that it exists. Yeah, because I mean, like, honestly, you know, if if you like Stephen King or or if you get into Stephen King at some point, you have to start to, like, you know, deal with the crappy parts of Stephen yeah. King, like Cujo or Tommy Knockers or, you know, whatever. And and certainly, like, there are a lot of that. There's a lot of that stuff out there. And, and this was written well after that period in his life. But that is still there. And and someone who has written so much is just sometimes going to, you know, like whiff it and strike out. And there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I mean, I think that seeing what a mind like Stephen King can do with the X-Files, it it feels like it should be a lot more interesting than this. Do you know what I mean? Like, the most interesting parts of this episode, to me, are the ones that were obviously from Chris Carter. And the ones from Stephen King just feel very, very bog standard. Yeah, in other words... Anybody could have written this episode. Oh, I'm going to do a Stephen King pastiche, and that's going to be my X-Files episode. And this could have been, and they could have written this exact episode. Right, right. I mean, I think it just all comes back to the beginning of this conversation where I I, I just don't think Stephen King is very good at writing film or television scripts. Yeah. You know, that's fair. A year or two after this, uh, the made-for-TV miniseries Storm of the Century would go, and it's just as bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I just think that what we're seeing here is, you know, just Stephen King's not good at this and that's that's fine, you know. Uh but at least he had Chris Carter to sort of like yeah. massage the episode into something that was somewhat interesting. And uh I have a soft spot for it. I mean, it's not good, but it's it's I had fun watching it. Yeah. And I don't know, sometimes it's all you can say, you know. No, I think that worked for it. This was a nice vacation yeah. to get out of our heads before next week we have in an edit we have some great episodes don't we don't we oh well that's a nice segue richard but we'll talk about that in just a minute but before we do that if you have any thoughts on or chinga please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com as i said earlier you can check out our patreon it supports this podcast if you listen you know you want to support us but hey, no hard feelings if you can't. We're all on a budget. Patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're there. Tuning in show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review for this podcast. I know we say it every week. I know Richard chimes in sometimes. It's the best way to get people to listen. Oh, yeah? All right, next week we're going to be talking about the episode's Kill Switch and Bad Blood, and I won't say anything about either one of them except that one of them is also written by a famous genre writer 
but it's not Stephen King. Mac, why do you... 